Welcome to Archive Treasures. I'm Rosie Hill from the Trentham and District Historical Society. Each episode, we will explore a topic ranging from Irish migration in the 19th century to plane spotting at Cranny's Hill in World War II. In this episode, we will share further snippets from past recorded newsletters. Trentham Historical Society, Inc. Recorder, Volume 10, Number 52, March 1998. In this issue are details of the petition forwarded to Belland Shire by ratepayers of North Blackwood, requesting that the area be annexed from the Belland Shire and added to Kyneton Shire. The request was apparently granted, as a further document shows that work was being done to form Lagoon Road, which would have been the main route to Kyneton from North Blackwood. The lagoon was drained by a channel and it could be assumed that much large rock would have been used in forming a foundation for the road. Note details of the large contribution by the ratepayers, both in material and labour. Also included is a comprehensive list of native plants, which are to be found in the Trentham Falls Reserve. The reserve is relatively undisturbed and numerous hollows in the ancient gums provide an important nesting area and also give shelter to several species of possums as well as other native fauna. The Trentham Historical Society meets on the third Monday of each month, except in January, in the old restored police station in Camp Street, which is our headquarters. All interested persons are invited to our meetings, and new members are sought and would be most welcome. Meetings commence at 2pm. The Recorder is published quarterly by the Society. President, Mr Eddie McInerney. Vice President, Mr Jack Langford. Secretary, Mrs Elizabeth McInerney. Treasurer, Mr John Cook. Public Officer, Mr John Cook. Printer, Mr John Cook. Editor, Mr Bruce McKenzie. After several good rains, the country is greening again, and danger from bushfires should not now be a worry. Our sympathy goes out to those who lost their homes, stock, hay and or other property in the recent fire which swept from Spring Hill to Ashbourne area on the 23rd of March 1998. We in Trentham Township were very fortunate as a few degrees difference in wind direction would have been disastrous for us. Trentham Historical Society Inc. Recorder Volume 10, Number 55, December 1998 Billy Carts Next time you're in High Street, look in Helen McRae's window and you'll see a billy cart. This is no ordinary billy cart and compared with our usual models, it is of an advanced design. It was built by Helen's grandfather and Helen recently rescued it from the chook shed. Whereas our billy carts were usually steered by ropes or by our feet on the front axle, this one has a steering wheel. At the lower end of the steering column is a cross piece, to which the ends of two steering rods are attached, the other ends of which join and pivot on the front axle. It has light cast iron wheels and the whole body is handmade. We were lucky in one way in the 1930s, as suitable wooden boxes were reasonably plentiful, most goods in those days being transported to Trentham by steam train and these boxes were readily converted into billy carts. Wheels were often scarce, 
and the most prized were the wire-spoked pram wheels. When really desperate, the heavy cast wheels from Truella manual tree grubbers were used, as badly chipped ones were sometimes available, and these really rattled and banged over the rough footpaths and roads. Many imaginative innovations were added to basic design, and the Morris boys, Wally and Rupert, who were expert billy cart makers, even added wings to one. The theory was that if we could build up enough speed going down the hill past the top pub, it might lift off, but it never did. Also, for night driving, jam tins with one end removed, nailed to the sides of the cart with the opened end forward, made lights when a stub of candle was put within. The light was feeble, and with too much speed the candle blew out. Brakes were also at times invented, but most were failures, and most braking was done by dragging feet on the ground. Billy carts were very useful for hawking rabbits and tins of pipe clay to the ladies around the town, as well as being great entertainment in those days, when we made our own fun, and I have many fond memories of those billy cart days. Trentham Historical Society Inc. Recorder, Volume 11, Number 56, March 1999 Distilling Eucalyptus Eucalyptus distilling was once a common occupation in Trentham and District, and it is still possible on some old sites to find remnants of the square iron tanks used for this purpose. Leaves were harvested from the gum trees with a sharp reap hook at times high above ground, and the person would, when possible, swing from one tree to another without climbing down. This could be quite hazardous, of course, and there were some serious injuries from falls. One such victim was William Briggs from Lionville, who fell and died from spinal and internal injuries, and is buried in the Trentham Cemetery. Jack Wiley was with him at the time. The leaves were packed into a tank, which was then filled with water, a lid put in place and sealed with clay or some other method, and a fire lit beneath. When the water boiled, the steam was forced through a pipe, and as the pipe passed through a cold water tank, the steam condensed back to liquid and dripped into a tub. The eucalyptus being lighter than water floated on top, and was skimmed off and put into 44-gallon drums, which then went by rail to Melbourne for the refining process. The crude eucalyptus was yellow in colour. The last person to distill eucalyptus in the Trentham area was George Franksky, Geordie, who lived between Newbury Corner and what is now called Newbury, once Garlic's Lead and then Blue Mount. Two very large cypress pines mark the site where the house once stood, and the stills were in the bush behind. Others who were eucalyptus distillers were Sam Davy, Jack Wiley, Bill Briggs, Jack Cassidy and Sam Clark. Bill Puker Sr. and Joe Manley from Newbury were leaf cutters. You're listening to Archive Treasures. Each episode, we dig deep to find treasures from within the archives. Trentham Historical Society Inc. Recorder, Volume 10, Number 53, June 1998. Boundary versus the Dingbats. During World War II, many functions were organised to raise money for the war effort. In this instance, two football teams were formed, and the proceeds from the games were allocated to the Red Cross. 
One team was of workers from Truella Brothers Foundry and the other from the rest of the town and which played under the name of the Dingbats. The photo is of the Foundry team and names of players are below. The year would have been 1943 as that was the time of the 10 inches of snow mentioned in training notes. Harry Drummond, Leo Donnelly, Jim Dunn, Alex Robertson, Harry Stainer, Ken Stevens, Kim Giles, Alan Gillis, Bruce McKenzie, Centre, Joe Madden, Lindsay Miller, Hedley Matheson, Gordon Gamble, Norman James Elliott, Alf Gamble, Charlie Miller, Laurie Scaler and Johnny McCashney. Occupations of those listed in training notes. Willie Scaler, blacksmith. Jack Higgins, barber, also played golf. Ern Goodrick, chemist. Bob Davey, steam engine driver. Tom McCashney, sawmiller. Bill Donnan, draper. Roy McKenzie, greengrocer and newsagent. Tom Diskin, bootmaker. Len Brown, carrier. Jack Roke, baker. Dave Johnson, baker, co-op. Ern Beatty, butcher. Leo Gleason, garage proprietor. Harry Waterman, assistant station master. Frank Kelly, dairyman. Charlie Dyte, poultry farmer. Boise Dwyer, potato farmer. Ron Cheatham, dairyman. Jeff Plant, wireless mechanic. Ted Matthews, butcher. Harry Drummond, boiler attendant. Charlie Miller, painter. Brusher Beach, blacksmith. Link Ray. Kim Giles, turner. Billy Bell, ding dong. Charlie Roke, baker. Popeye Robson, played guitar. George Colvin, issued tools. Smithy, married Laurel Smith. Bernie Kenner, from Blue Mount. Dr. Wisewald, medical practitioner. Jim Cummins, publican. Training notes, July 31st. Willie Scaler, coach, is hammering the dingbats into form. After their first tryout, several stars are in first-class form. Notably, Gerard, kick, with the ball, Ryle. Also, a fine recruit in Willie Sperling. A most promising lad, but he may be a bit over-anxious being his first match. Roy McKenzie also has a promising future. Jack Higgins did very well, but he has a bad habit of calling four every time he kicks. Goodrick takes the pill for his excellent track work. Gleeson is in rare form. He seems short-winded in his little pants. Bob Davy took things easy. He has not yet got full steam up. Tom McCashney worked beautifully. He may have resin on his hands. Bill Donnan seems about a yard short in his track movements. Those not yet seen at practice include Torn Diskin, George McRae, Chaz Beatty, I Hart, Jim McKenzie, Chaz, Pretty, Chaz, Curthoys, Tom O'Hare, WJ and Tom Coffey. Wednesday the 4th of August, 10 inches of snow on the ground. Training under far from ideal conditions. Good form was again shown by the dingbats. Pessimism rocked the dingbats to their foundations when it became known that their dashing half-forward, Roy McKenzie, was injured making a late dash with the evening edition of the Herald last Saturday. He slipped in the snow at the news agency doorstep. Result? Broken shoulder and severe abrasions. Bad luck, though good and faithful servant. Brightbits. James Cummins is up and coming. will make it hard going for the foundry. Tom Diskin and native McGregor were training last night, going alpha leather. 
said Tom when the post he passed. Pon my soul, I must stick to the last. Jack Higgins, going at a good clip, should not get his hair off should he miss the goal. Len Brown will give a tonne of trouble, perhaps four tonnes should he use his truck. Jack Roke intends to put his dough on the foundry, but Dave Johnson has baking for the dingbats. Ern Beatty meets everything that comes in his way. Leo Gleason's wind has improved, lots of free air required in training. Willie Scaler, coach and bodybuilder, also looks to the boots. Harry Waterman trains well. It is reported that he purchased a monthly ticket, five shillings. Thanks, Harry. Frank Kelly trains in the morning, trotting with the milk. Note his cream pants. Charlie Dyke does exactly the right thing at the right time. Borsi Dwyer picking up well. Bing Crosby leaving the crooning and taking to whistle should prove a star performer. Roy Cheatham home on the cow's back. McRae got a beaten. Is Hart came home wimpy. Jeff Plant listened in. Ted Matthews' nose was dripping until he got warmed up. Welsh police is keeping his eye on pots. Father O'Connor beat Burns by miles. MacDonald is likely to put in a fine turn any minute. Chaz Pretty beat Tom Ugly by a length. Training notes, Foundry's first practice. Off to an excellent start. Expect a hard match but heard from Billy Bell that they would give the dingbats nothing. Alex Robertson, light in the side, said it looks as if they will mould themselves into a good side. Harry Drummond wants to be umpire so that he can blow the whistle. Eddie Stevens made a late appearance, but moved smartly. Harry Bunt looks like holding his fool back. Charlie Miller has agreed to provide brush and iodine to paint all injuries. Brusher Beach is hammering away solidly. Link Ray was cautioned for striking at the first run. Splinter Robson is a fine all-rounder. Jim Giles is impressing with his clever turning. Smithy and Ted Smallman, both in the one stable, broke down at training. Big Joe Donahue thinks he will get them well in time. Leo Donnelly is a good colt from Coliban, has a cold shower at the falls after training. Coach Peter Drummond is confident of lifting his side to the top of the tree. Notable absentees from training, Jack Truella, Frank Truella, George Truella, Bill Smith, Mate Hammond, Jim Dunn, Hedley Matheson, Joe Manley and Frank Castle. Failure to attend training incurs a five shilling fine. Will Stevens reports for the Foundry, July 31st. He says, a Foundry player brave and bold is Jimmy Elliott, so I'm told. His motto always, mark and hold. We're certain he will ne'er grow old. Cyril Black, too dark to see how he's shaped. Popeye Robson was here, there and everywhere, like a wandering minstrel. George Calvin and Top Going will be a spanner in the dingbat's machinery. Smithy will take the laurels if he produces Wednesday's form. Jim Giles plays plenty of guile. Bernie Keener, a bolt from the blue. Alex Beach, plenty of sand and grit. Alex Robertson, no alec at the game. Hedley Matheson, very deadly in front of the sticks. One player not named made a big effort for a small man. The big four, Bunt, Beach, Stevens and Maine, have not missed a night to train. Just like the wise old men of Gosham, said if we can't beat them, we will blooming well squash them. Old Jim Dunn, not done by any means. Fred, hooray, looks the goods. Head trainer, Dr Wisewald, has not made an appearance, looks like a fine. Ding dong rings true to form. 
Notice extraordinary and take notice. Just to remind all players and supporters that this is a gift show. Money must be found for the Red Cross. Put your hands out of your pockets and have something in them for the cause. Don't go to the ground empty in purse, otherwise you will have to be escorted home to produce cash. Stewards will be placed around the ground, whose duty it will be to report unseemly conduct, etc. etc. All infringements by players or supporters will be severely punished by heavy fines. The committee will appreciate matters of this nature being brought to their notice. A number of likely players have not yet put in an appearance at practice. Their names are on the selection committee's list and fines of up to five shillings can be easily incurred. The Red Cross does not mind if you absent yourself from training, providing you do not squeal when these fines are imposed. No exception can be made to this rule. The silent, efficient, searching sleuth of the secret committee have full power. Dr Wisehalt has agreed to X-ray each side before the match. Extra. Latest radio flash reveals that Frank Kelly and Jimmy Cummins will take complete control of the Savaloy pot. Charlie Rook is mixing up the dough, but he is not allowed to do anything in a small way. All fines for non-attendance must be promptly paid to Mackenzie's Fruit Emporium, High Street Trentham. Extra, extra. Peter Bryce is disgusted and went away because Harry McLinden would not go alone. Archive Treasures, coming from the Trentham and District Historical Society. Trentham Historical Society Inc. Recorder, Volume 1, Number 1, March 2000. Concert at the Mechanics Hall, 1912. The photo on page 2 is of a concert in the Mechanics Hall, and the year is thought to be 1912. Unfortunately, we have no names of the performers. Concerts were very popular in that era. Of much interest are the advertisements on the blind, which could be lowered in front of the stage. The Coffee Palace of Mollison Street, Kyneton, was later renamed Victoria House and run by Dave Donaldson and his two sisters as a boarding house. A. Hobbs was a soft drink manufacturer and I have some marble bottles with the name A. Hobbs embossed on them. Victoria Brewery? I have no information on this. W. Smith's Railway Hotel was at the corner of High and Market Streets and is at present the office of L.J. Hooker, estate agent. The Historical Society has some of the ironwork off Mr. Smith's coach. W. Norton, Billy, had a drapery shop in High Street and it is said that this shop was demolished and the double-storey building, which is now owned by the Masonic Lodge, was built after a rich patch of gold was found at the rear. W. Norton at one time appeared in large lettering on the east side of the building, as did the names Chapman and Donnan at different stages. C.R. Moore was a soft drink manufacturer from Dalesford, and I have some of his marble bottles also. J.W.S. Wolfe was a general storekeeper in High Street Trentham in the 1860s, as well as running a bakery and butchery and split timber yard. J.A. McKenzie later owned the store and J. Groves the bakery. Dalesford Brewery, owned by James Dolphin, no details of this. F. Boyett, dentist, no information. P. Gardner, coach builder, Kyneton, the Rechabite Society. The Rechabite Hall in Trentham was just inside the boundary of the Lions Park Reserve at the west end of Albert Street. George Millage, Kyneton, 
sold timber, furniture and hardware. W.J. Anderson was a general storekeeper in Blackwood, then Trentham. He sold the Trentham building to the Trentham Cooperative Society in 1920. He later had his office and shop where foxes have their cafe. My father, J.A. Mackenzie, had his first general store there. Anderson was a well-known identity and was commonly referred to as W.J., There was mention of talkies being shown in the Mechanics Hall in the last edition of the Recorder. Further information received states that the first talkies were shown on the 6th of the 11th, 1936, and that two films were shown, Naughty Marietta and Laurel and Hardy. The entry fee was one shilling and sixpence, or 15 cents for adults, and ninepence, or eight cents for children. One elderly gentleman from near Bluemount would always sit next to the aisle, with his dog curled on the floor beside him. Trentham Historical Society, Inc. Recorder, Volume 1, Number 2, June 2000. Mud and Snow in Trentham. Trentham is notorious for its cold, wet winters and the snowfalls which usually accompany them. Nowadays, with good roads and motor cars, severe weather conditions are much easier to cope with, unlike the late 1800s and early 1900s when most vehicles were horse-drawn. Unmade tracks and formed roads alike would become quagmire and sometimes impassable with mud up to the horses' bellies. To counteract this, roads were sometimes formed with cobblestones. There were some good examples of this, one being in the Falls Lane and another in Newton's Lane and others at East Trentham, etc. Cordroy roads were also extensively used to stop wheels churning up the mud. These were formed by laying saplings side by side across and along the length of the road. One section was along the swampy area known as the Newbury Flats, from Newbury Corner to the foot of Tony's Hill, leading into what is now known as Newbury Township, once Garlick's Lead, and later Blue Mount. This section was ripped up in the 1950s, but remnants can still be seen at Newbury Corner. As time progressed, roads were surfaced with crushed rock and were much improved, although often potholy. The first tarred road was laid down in the 1950s and was from the Forest Hotel corner to the railway crossing on the road to Tilden. The following newspaper cuttings prove an indication of winter conditions in Trentham in 1885. Newspaper cuttings. 100 years ago, June the 16th, 1885. Trentham mud. Our correspondent reports being much amused to hear in passing through Trentham Township or rather Mud City, that stilts were provided by two of the philanthropic residents for the use of foot passengers, crossing from Mr Burns' hotel to Mr Wright's store, one pair being at either side. A notice is appended to each requesting those who might use them not to take them away. If the council were to furnish the inhabitants with one dozen pairs of stilts to cross and recross the township on, they would be conferring a great boon on the public. A few pair of stilts left one half at the railway gates and the other half at the Colliban Bridge, might enable the ratepayers, having business in Trentham, to get there without the danger of losing boots, etc., and the slough of despond existing between the above-mentioned spots. Should our Kiton friends, who have never seen anything worse than the mud in or around Kiton, 
wish to see this beauty spot in our lovely rural district, now is the time. The mud may be deeper, softer and wetter in a few months, but the invitation is still to one and all. 100 years ago, June the 23rd, 1885. Cobb & Co. The bad state of the Newbury Road last year was a serious inconvenience to coach traffic, and things are rather worse this winter. The liability to accident has induced Cobb & Co. to insure themselves against loss by making their passengers pay a heavy premium in the shape of a double fare between Trentham and Blackwood. The increased fares are now being charged. Trentham Historical Society Inc. Recorder, Volume 2, Number 3, September 2001. Gold. The township of Clunes is usually accredited as being the site of the first registered payable gold deposit in Victoria, which was discovered by James Esmond on July 1, 1851. The mine was named the Port Phillip and worked deep lead quartz reefs. Ballarat is said to have been one of the world's richest gold fields. Due to the gold rush, people from many parts of the world came to Victoria, and during the period from 1851 to 61, the population rose from 34,000 to 600,000, with 13,000 on Ballarat gold fields. Also during the same period of time, 44,000 Chinese came to Victorian gold fields. To slow the number of Chinese, a £10 landing fee was imposed at Victorian ports. So, many then disembarked at Robe in South Australia and walked over to Victoria. Each miner was compelled to pay 30 shillings per month as a licence fee, and this absorbent amount charged led to the uprising at the Eureka Stockade at Ballarat. News of many of the first gold finds was kept secret by the finders, or was suppressed by government, concerned at the great number of people deserting ships and many other jobs to go mining. Gold was to be found in Trentham Township, and infilled shafts and remnants of water races attest to this. The report on the following page, compiled by the Mines Department 1906, gives a good indication of the amount of mining carried out up until this date. Trentham was included in what was known as the Blue Mount Diggings. The most recognised mines close to and south of Trentham were the Trojan, Yankee, which closed in 1936, Countess, Alma, Kitty Ogden, Snake and the Triumph, later renamed Amelia, and the Blue Mount Alluvial Mine, the machinery etc. of which was sold to Ma Daly for her scrap metal yards in Melbourne, also in 1936. For some reason, Small round industrial briquettes were used to fire the boiler of the Blue Mount mine at one stage. The briquettes came by goods train to Trentham and were carted from the railway station by horse and dray to the mine. The drays were usually well filled, with the result that as they bumped through the potholes in Cosmo Road, many briquettes fell over the sides, and we as boys would have fun after school picking them up. A mine manager who once walked to the mine said he could smell briquettes burning in every house in Cosmo Road. The Yankee mine produced 4,942 ounces of gold to a depth of 320 feet. The Countess, 800 ounces. Alma, no record of yield, was worked to 200 feet and produced one ounce per tonne. 
Kitty Ogden, 500 ounces. Amelia, 700 ounces. Snake, 703 ounces to 290 feet. Blue Mount, no records to hand. The Salton mine at Barry's Reef was probably the richest mine close to Trentham, as it yielded two and three quarter tonnes of gold, Troy weight. Troy weight. Four grains equals one carat. Six carats, or 24 grains, equals one pennyweight. 20 pennyweights equal one ounce. 12 ounces equal one pound. 25 pounds equals one quarter. 100 pounds, or four quarters, equals one hundredweight. 20 hundredweights equals one tonne of gold or silver. Archive Treasures, coming from the Trentham and District Historical Society. Trentham Historical Society Recorder, Volume 1, Number 7, July 1988. The Blacksmith of Stony Creek. This is a story that began with a question. While details have slowly accumulated from disparate sources, it has yet to fully unfold. When Bruce Mackenzie, some years ago, acquired late 19th century business records from one of Trentham's foremost hotels, the Cosmopolitan, he was intrigued by several invoices bearing the name of James Hay, General Blacksmith and Wheelwright. One, dated May 1885, gave his addresses Tilden and East Trentham and two others, of April and June 1889, showed his address to be Stony Creek, Trentham. At that time, no one he asked had heard of Hay or of a Stony Creek smithy. In mid-1987, I noticed in the Trentham Parish Plan that a narrow block measuring 34 feet by 205 feet on the corner of High Street and Leland Street an unmade road running between High and Victoria Streets, immediately to the west of Stony Creek and the present Quarry Street Lake, had been purchased from the Crown on the 5th of June 1891 by R. Hay, Administrix of J. Hay. This suggested the location of Hay's smithy, but it also suggested that he hadn't owned the land he was operating on in 1889 and that he was dead by June 1891. Here, the matter rested for some time. The next step occurred a couple of months later, when Arthur Beatty discovered a photograph of Trentham, published in a book entitled Illustrated Guide and Map to Kyneton and Surrounding Districts, including Trentham, Lauriston and Malmesbury. Published by the Kyneton Progress Association in 1898, held by the Kyneton Historical Society. This photograph is an easterly view taken from High Street, at the intersection of Blue Mount Road. Although the photograph is not especially clear, a close look shows a single gabled timber structure running east-west, parallel with High Street, on what appears to be the hay block shown on the parish plan. The evidence available at this point implied that, one, James Hay established his smithy on the corner of Leland and High Streets between May 1885 and April 1889. Two, the timber building in the 1898 photo was his smithy. Three, he was dead by June 1891. And four, he was married and that his wife's name began with R.
Each of these propositions was uncorroborated, however. Then, in the summer of 1987, Frank Hammond showed Bruce McKenzie a set of 14 half-plate glass negatives taken by Frank's father George between 1900 and 1908. When prints were taken from these clear and well-exposed negatives, they proved to be local shops and buildings, some from Blackwood, but most from Trentham. Some identifiable, but others not. One of the plates showed a single gabled timber structure with a shingled roof, reproduced on the front cover. Although the day is overcast, rendering shadows indistinct, the glare on the shingles indicates that the photo was taken looking to the north. This has been disputed. To the right of the building, that is, to the east, vacant, possibly swampy land can be seen. Displayed against the door and wall is a five-foot diameter cartwheel of heavy construction. The spokes have a luster, showing it to be new or recently repaired, and it has obviously been placed in position after the door was opened that morning. Four men are standing in front of the building. The two central ones are in shirt sleeves and wear the characteristic leather apron of the blacksmith with the split in the bottom. The one on the right, with his hands on his hips, has a proprietorial air. He seems to be waiting impatiently for the photographer to get on with it so that he can get back to his job. A building is visible through the doorway. There is a section of railing, and curtains in the windows indicate that it is a dwelling. Between the dwelling and the blacksmith shop is a piece of equipment. It appears to be a cart supported by a jack, and if so would probably be the cart from which the wheel has been taken for repair. The man on the right wears a long coat and is perhaps the carter waiting for the repair to be finished. The design, proportions and orientation correspond to the smithy pictured in the 1898 photo. As it was taken 10 to 20 years after the presumed death of James Hay, the question arises, who are these blacksmiths? Information was sought in two further directions. Burial records at the Trentham Cemetery were checked, but contained no record of Hayes' burial. The Shire of Kighton rate books show that James Hay paid rates on a blacksmith's shop and dwelling in High Street Trentham in 1879, and from 1884 to 1889. The rate books for the years 1890 to 1898 are missing. He did not pay rates in 1899. In 1882, Hay occupied the blacksmith shop of John Glen, near the Fernhill Railway Station. This is presumably the location referred to on the 1885 invoice. Hay also paid rates on a house and land at Lot 9 Albert Street, Trentham, in 1878 and 1884 and 1885. The rate books show a certain amount of shifting about. They suggest that Hay came to Trentham in 1884, which conflicts with the address shown on the invoice of 1885. This could be explained if Hay wanted to use up his old invoices before having new ones printed, and one wonders how likely Bill Byrne would have been to go to Fernhill for his blacksmithing. On the other hand, we have no record at this stage of any other blacksmith in Trentham at the time, and a businessman would be likely to cross out the old address and insert the new one if he was using old stationery. 
At this point then, we can tentatively say that we know the location of the Stony Creek Blacksmith and Wheelwright shop, and what it looked like. We have conflicting information regarding when he arrived, and a rough idea of when he was there. Evidence of his dwelling at the High Street site is also conflicting. The 1898 photo shows none, but it could have been taken years earlier. The rate books and the Hammond photo, if indeed it is Hayes Smithy, indicate the opposite. For the time being, we can go no further. The Birchnell's directories of the period may shed some light, but for the rest, we can only rely on new information from readers to round out the story of The Blacksmith of Stony Creek. Archive Treasures is produced on Zha Wurong country. We acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners, and we would also like to extend our respects to the elders, past, present and emerging. Archive Treasures is brought to you by the Trentham and District Historical Society. If you would like to hear further episodes, they are available from most podcasting apps, or on our website, www.trenthamhistoricalsociety.org.au or you can go to our Facebook page Trentham and Districts Historical Society Australia I hope you can tune in next time for more archive treasures <laughs>